Good morning. My name is Madeline Kim. This morning our scripture reading is from the book of John. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading verses 28 through 30 from John chapter 19 in the New American Standard Bible. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full on the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Good to see you all here today. Today is the first Sunday of us going to two services. And the first, Sunday, first service we had today had 58 people. And there's like four times that in here right now. So we got to do some uh, juggling here to even it out a little bit. Um, I want to uh, take the next three weeks to finish the book of John. And uh, I really like going through whole books gives me a sense of uh, a finish line and a sense that I've completed something. And uh, we're going to talk about that today, this idea of purpose and how important and uh, paramount it is in our lives. The title of today's talk is Your Thirst. And uh, today I want to start by talking about this idea of, so I want to begin today with this idea of thirst. Uh, Jesus says in verse 28, these three words, I am thirsty. Do you remember what it's like to be thirsty? Now I know, not, not that I've said this, many of you are feeling thirsty right now. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Well, you know, um, uh, last week I was on vacation with my family in California, and we went to my sister's house. And they were all sick. So then my whole family became sick, except for me, because I thought I'm a hero and I'm better than those people. <laughs> I just prolonged it, and this week I got sick. And I woke up a lot during the night with feelings of thirst. My throat and my mouth were so dry that my body literally woke me up. And you know how you're kind of thirsty and you get woken up and then you do the debate in your head about whether it's worth it to wake yourself up even more to get water? Or maybe if you can sort of fall asleep back again, you, you know, you kind of do that. Well, I did that all week long. So I feel very familiar with this idea of thirst. And uh, it's a good, good way for us to think about uh, the passage today. What does it mean for a human being to be thirsty? The Bible says that the way we experience thirst is one of the best ways for us, for us to understand what it's like to long for God. For example, the Bible says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after you. As a deer pants for the water. Do you ever think about that? That maybe you have a longing, a thirst for God? That maybe underneath all your other thirsts, all the other longings, all the other hungers you have, underneath it all, more 
fundamental than anything else is our thirst for God. And that's what the Bible tells us. One of, the, uh, one of my favorite stories that Jesus tells is about a poor man. His name is Lazarus. And alongside him is another character without a name. He's just the rich man. And Lazarus, the poor man, he dies. And the rich man, he dies. And they both find themselves in this space together. The space is divided by a giant, unspannable chasm. And on one side of the chasm, it's called Abraham's bosom. And Lazarus is receiving comfort from Abraham. And then on the other side of the chasm is the rich man who did nothing to help Lazarus when he was alive. And uh, the rich man is parched and he's drying up and he's burning up. But not from the outside. Not his hair, not his clothes, not his eyebrows, none of that. But he said, I'm burning up and I just need a little bit of water. I'm so thirsty. And this informs the way I understand what it means to sin. When we sin, the Bible says that God begins to extract himself away from us. And because we were made by God and for God, when God begins to separate himself from us, we begin to feel a thirst from the inside. It's a kind of burning up on the inside. So imagine your very worst thirst and multiply that exponentially and you have what you might experience if God were to withdraw his spirit from you. In another passage, the Bible says that if God withdrew his spirit from us, we would all dry up instantly and become dust. That we couldn't exist apart from God because God himself is existence. He is reality. And there is no existing apart from him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together from him and through him and to him. And so God is everything. And if God withdrew himself, we feel this thing the Bible calls thirst. Now, how many of you right now already have New Year's resolutions set for the year 2018? Let me see a show of hands. Why do you have New Year's resolutions? Why bother? <laughs> Why try? Because we can't help ourselves, I think. It's a new year. You know, 2017 becomes 2018, and we feel a sense of newness, a new opportunity. The slate is clean. All is forgiven. We get to start over, and we give it another go. Why? I think it's because we have this deep, deep thirst for more for better, for something. What is it that we are thirsty for? And I want to submit to you today that I think there's two things that are at the base of what we really, really are longing for in our resolutions or otherwise. And those two things are purpose and perfect. Start with purpose. Let's see this phrase, I'm thirsty, in context. Verse 28 says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. To, to fulfill the scripture. Now, for years I've read this, and for years I thought, this is the most silly thing about the Bible. 
There's so many times when people do things in order to fulfill Scripture. Why? And the best answer I can come up with over the years was because Jesus is kind of OCD. You know, he's kind of neurotic. And he has this compulsive need to check things off. You know, it's like the Bible says so, so I better do it, and then I get credit for it. What's your theory? Why is it important for Jesus to fulfill Scripture? Why does the author put that in there? To fulfill Scripture said, I am thirsty. I submit to you today that I think Jesus is expressing one of the most fundamental needs of the human being that is to have purpose. You don't just exist. If God said, you know what, Peter, you can do whatever you want. Whatever you want. You decide each and every day what you feel like, what will make you happy, and you can do that. There will be no consequences. I'll give you all the resources you need. Whatever you want, go for it. And if God were to give me that carte blanche, I would be absolutely miserable. Because I was created for purpose. I'm hardwired for marching orders. I want to know why and what. That's who I am. That's what it means to be a human being. It's purpose. I don't know if you are here as a Christian or not. You don't have to think about God for this point because I think your experience is still human. You want to know why you exist. More than what you want to do, you want to know what you should do, what you ought to do. More than just exercising your free will, you want to know what to obey, who to trust. What is your destiny? What's in the cards for you? What's written in the stars? This is the longing of our hearts. And I would also suggest to you that purpose is greater, means much more to us than seeking happiness, security, comfort, preferences, compulsions, or addictions. In fact, you know, there's so much research out there now on uh, positive psychology and happiness we know that if you aim at happiness, you can never, ever experience happiness. That if you aim at security, you can never feel secure. That if you aim at comfort, you're never comfortable. And if you have all of your preferences met, you're a miserable person. This is what we know. That actually, the greatest sense of joy and fulfillment, satisfaction, comes not from getting what you think you want, but from a sense of having accomplished your purpose. That is, not just Jesus, but all of us, what we want is to fulfill Scripture. And for us to have purpose in our life, it means that we need to have authority in our life because purpose comes from authority. In Jesus' life, it was Scripture. He was always obeying Scripture. He was always quoting Scripture. You cut him, he bled Scripture. 
Because he had a mission. The Bible says his face was set like flint towards Jerusalem. It says that it was his food to do the will of God. He says that I only do what I see my father doing. He lived under the submission and authority of his father, of the Holy Spirit. That's why he received baptism. That's why he said, yet not as I will, but yours be done. He lived a life of submission. That's who Jesus was. One of the key differences is that if you are seeking purpose in your life, you live not for yourself, but for the purpose for which you were created. You want to know, what am I supposed to do? Who was I made to be? That means that from purpose comes meaning. If you want meaning in your life, you need purpose. And if you want purpose, you need authority. If you need authority, it comes from Scripture. That's the way the Bible teaches how joy comes. There's this uh, phrase that, I don't know why it's a phrase I've read so many times, but when I still read it, on the regular, I feel touch and I feel tears forming in my eyes. It's this phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. Just imagining what it's like to have lived my life, to have done all I can to obey, to submit, to do the right thing, and then to die and to stand before my maker and for him to look at me, put his hand on my shoulder and say, Peter, well done, good and faithful servant. That's who I am. That's what I am. And I submit to you, that's your meaning as well. Uh, some of you know that I like to run. I can't imagine running without a finish line. I can't imagine just me deciding, I'm going to run a marathon today, start here, I'm going to finish there, start at this time. No, I have to pay my 100 bucks and sign up for a race because I need my meaning to come from outside of myself. Somebody else has to shoot the start gun and somebody else has to tell me where the finish line is. That's where my sense, my drive, my activation comes from. It's this voice verdict from the outside. I know as we think about our, you know, new year, we ask questions about our happiness. Like, what will make us happy? What are my preferences? You know, what I really want, and I want to tell you, none of that matters compared to what you're supposed to do. If you judge your marriage, for example, by what makes you happy or what you think the other person should do, your marriage sucks. But if you judge your marriage, if you look at it based on what your purpose is, that God's created you to love and serve and give this to this person, you're going to have a great year. Because it's not about them, it's not about how you feel, but it's about your job, your role, the call on your life. Same thing with your workplace and your friendships, relationships, life at church. It's all about purpose. Why do you exist? Who made you? For what? Happiness is greater. I mean, purpose is greater 
than happiness. Uh, there's one article I want to reference here. Uh, I put the link for it in the sermon notes if you look at that. Uh, basically, uh, it was, this is a New York Times article published uh, January 1st, 2018. Um, it's talking about purpose and meaning. And it's just demonstrating research. And I just want to read you what the scientific community has to say about purpose as it relates to happiness. The whole point of the article is that purpose trumps happiness every time in terms of everything, including happiness. Okay? Uh, it says this. It first defines it. It says, um, uh, eudaimonic research is the science of studying meaning and purpose, well-being. And then it compares it to hedonic research, which is a science of studying happiness. And it has a few statistics it wants to lay out. I'm going to summarize it for you here like this. Having purpose is linked to a number of positive health outcomes. Okay, so if you want to be healthy this year, listen. Including better sleep, fewer strokes and heart attacks, and a lower risk of dementia, disability, and premature death. Those with a strong sense of purpose are more likely to embrace preventative health services like mammograms, colonoscopies, and flu shots. So first it starts by saying, if you have purpose in your life, you're going to live a healthier, happier, more functional life. And then it says, if you actually have purpose, you're going to even do the things that make you even healthier and uh, even better in your life, right? Like getting flu shots. And people with high scores on um, measures of uh, eudaimonic well-being have low levels of pro-inflammatory gene expression. So if you have purpose, the way your genes express themselves even begin to change. So we all have the genes for all sorts of things, but your body will literally suppress the ones that are bad for you if you have a purpose. But as you begin to lose your sense of purpose, those genes that aren't good for you begin to express themselves. This is, this is what the science is saying. One study analyzed how having purpose influences one's risk of dementia. Researchers assessed baseline levels of purpose for 951 individuals without dementia, then followed them for seven years, controlling for things like depression, neuroticism, socioeconomic status, and chronic disease. Those who had expressed a greater sense of purpose were, check this out, 2.4 times less likely to develop Alzheimer's and were far less likely to develop even minor cognitive problems. Another study followed more than 6,000 individuals over 14 years and found that those with greater purpose were 15% less likely to die than those who were aimless and that having purpose was protective against the lifespan for people in their 20s as well as those in their 70s. Teenagers who volunteered had lower levels of inflammation, better cholesterol profiles, and lower body mass index. Those who had the biggest jumps in empathy and altruism scores had the largest reductions in cardiovascular risk. So basically, to sum it up, if you have purpose in your life, you're going to live a higher quality of life. Your body is basically telling itself you got to keep going, stay good, stay healthy, stay strong. It even controls things like gene expression, and you live longer. 
There is literally zero downside to having purpose. And that's all that verse is saying. And this is what I'm suggesting to you, that just like Jesus, you and I have a deep longing that on a cellular level, we know we need to fulfill Scripture. That the Bible tells us why we exist, how we are to live our life, how we are to judge and measure our life. And the more you come to grips with this truth, the better you're going to live, the happier you are going to be indirectly. This is God's will and plan for you. Now, you know, for years I've just had problems with Christians always talking about God's will. And to be fair, Christians have done a bad job in many cases of throwing the word God's will around, using it and abusing it for their own ends. But the truth still remains that us seeking God's will is healthier and happier for us than seeking our own will. Because God created us. He's our maker and he knows how and why we are to live. Second, as we seek God's purpose in our life, uh, there's a promise of what God calls perfect. Verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This word, finished, uh, it's the Greek word that's uh, often translated perfect. Sometimes it's translated in the English word complete. And I want to point out to you that actually um, it's missed in the English tense, but in the Greek tense it's active and it's personal. So the most literal and accurate translation of the phrase, it is finished, would be I have finished it. It's in the perfect tense. That it's finished and perfected for all time. It's done. Jesus himself has perfected it. Now, what's encouraging to me about this little phrase is you have to understand it in the context of Jesus' life. Look at the circumstances under which Jesus is saying, I have perfected it. He's hanging on a cross. It's a Roman instrument designed for torture for criminals. You know, like, he's branded. You know, he's got a label on him. Not everybody knows all the details and the true story of why this man is up there. Most people are looking upon the cross going, just another crook, somebody who deserved to be tortured, who deserved to be hanging on a Roman cross. Right before he was hanging on the cross, he went through uh, an unjust uh, trial. They brought forth false witnesses. They arrested him under pretenses. And right before that, he was abandoned and betrayed by all of his friends, including his very best friend, Peter, who denied him three times. His own family and friends, they're all nowhere to be found. He lived a short life. He was only about 33 years old. Only three of those years was he contributing by doing actual work. Prior to that, he was all getting ready 
And then just three short years later, he finds himself hanging on a cross. His life is anything but perfect. And yet, Jesus said, it is perfect. I have perfected it. What is he talking about? He's saying there is an economy of God that is perfect. God's economy is able to take every broken, painful, messed up, unjust, unright thing and use it all for the good such that it ends up being perfect. He's not saying that every little moment is pain-free. He's not saying that there isn't evil that somehow penetrated Jesus' life. Of course there was. It was evil that sent him to the cross. But somehow in God's power and economy, everything was somehow used for perfection. And that's really the beauty of it, that it all comes together so perfectly. And this is the promise for our life, that as we seek God's purposes, at the end of it, God will look at you and say, you are perfect. Your life is perfect. It's exactly the way it ought to be. Everything is okay. He takes all of our pain, all of our grief, all of the things that we call life. Somehow he's able to integrate it into his will and make it perfect. This is called abounding grace. This is God's redemption in our life. It's perfect. Um, I have, uh, you know, kids, teenagers now, so I'm learning a whole new generation of songs because those are playing all the time. And uh, so one of the songs is a song called Perfect by Ed Sheeran. Anybody know Ed Sheeran's Perfect? Let me see a show of hands. Who among us are with it? Um, and there's an there's a, um, alternate version of this song that's a duet with Beyonce. Anybody know Beyonce? Let me see a show of hands. Y'all got to get out there more or, or babysit my teenage kids. And then you can. Um, but there's a song that we've been playing on repeat in the song Household. And it's called Perfect. And here's a stanza um, a section of that song. Let me read you the words. It says this. I'm dancing in the dark. You can sing in your head if you know the song. I'm dancing in the dark with you between my arms. Barefoot on the grass, listening to our favorite song. When you said you looked a mess, I whispered underneath my breath, darling, you look perfect tonight. We're playing this, and Susie stops the song right at the end of this stanza, and she just whispers to me, she said, Peter, just so you know, that's a perfect response. <laughs> and then she hit play again. <laughs> now, I've thought about why that's a perfect response, and here's why. Okay, you ready? It's because he's not saying every strand of her hair is perfect. He's not saying every single thing about her is perfect. What he's saying is it all comes together just perfectly. And that's what she wants to hear. You know, not that everything is perfect, because nothing can be, but it all becomes perfect. It's perfect right now. It's been made perfect somehow. So guys, this is the response, okay? 
If somebody asks you how I look or do I look blank, whatever, your response is you look perfect. Got it? How do I look? Perfect. Perfect. Um, so in summary and application here, uh, three things. One, I want to invite you to recognize the thirst that's underneath all of your thirsts. You may think you long for a new job or a new house or new friends or new money or more money or more things. It's really none of those things. And you know this because you've had those things and none of them ever did it. What is the thing that you really are thirsty for? And I want to encourage you to think about the fact that it might be God himself. It just might be. Second, more than happiness, seek purpose. Ask the question, what am I supposed to do? What's the scripture I'm supposed to fulfill this year? When you think about your relationships, don't ask, what can I get out of it? Ask, what's my purpose? How can I serve the purpose in these relationships? You know, what's my purpose here at work? How can I fulfill those purposes? What's my job as a citizen? How can I do that? Ask that question and do that this year. And then lastly, Trust and enjoy that as you engage in your purposes, God will make all things perfect in your life. In the end, your story will end really, really well. Not because you deserve it, not because you're great, but because God's economy is perfect. God's redemptive purposes in your life are perfect, and they will accomplish his purposes. <clears throat> Today, uh, I want to end the uh, sermon with communion. And uh, I want to invite you to focus today on your hunger and thirst. You know, as you partake of his body in the bread and his blood in the wine, uh, I want you to pray. Say, God, let your body and let your blood satisfy me. Let it quench the thirst. Let it satisfy my hunger. May you be meaning in my life. So focus on that, pray that prayer as you partake of communion today.